HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. The great state of Wisconsin is home to the only master cheesemaking program outside of Switzerland. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com. This week on a special bonus episode of Meat in 3, we find out why the bacon, egg, and cheese, that classic bodega sandwich, is popping up on menus of New York's trendiest restaurants. We did a few iterations of it, and I was trying to fancify it. We tried the sausage, egg, and cheese, and then we tried to put charmoula sauce on it. We used feta cheese, and we just like taking ingredients of the Mediterranean, if you will, and try to infuse it. But uh, for me, it was like a car wreck. Tune in to hear about the wild journey of the bacon, egg, and cheese, from deli to fine dining, on Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, available wherever you listen to podcasts. evening and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Today, we're going to be talking to author and historian Benjamin Aldez Wargaft about his new book, Meat Planet, Artificial Flesh and the Future of Food. In this book, Ben delves into the world of a new kind of protein made by scientists by growing animal cells into fibers and the cultural, ethical, and philosophical questions about what we as humans eat and why. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here with you. Um, It's an honor to have you. So just to kind of get started, you're currently a visiting scholar in anthropology at MIT. Um, Why did you decide to focus on food, which you have been doing for some time, but how did you kind of come about this topic? Yeah, so so um, maybe I can I can uh, say why somebody who is uh, mostly a scholar in his day job would uh, write a book about contemporary food biotechnology. Right, exactly. Um, and you know and, what? Just and, and, super quick question. This is maybe silly, but what do you do as a scholar? What does that mean today? Oh, well, <laughs> uh, so briefly, I should say that in my mid-20s, I started to do two things. Um, One of them was to work towards the PhD I eventually got, 
from the University of California, Berkeley, in European intellectual history, which is to say, history of philosophy and science in modern Europe. Um, and the other thing that I did was be a food writer. And I had worked in restaurants and cafes and doing various food service jobs after college. And I had been parlaying that into a sort of a side career writing about food for different kinds of magazines and journals. And um, I had a longstanding curiosity about an interest in both food and in issues around agriculture. And um, I was also working my way towards an academic career as somebody who writes about the history of philosophy in modern Europe. And um, after I had uh, been a postdoctoral fellow at the new school in New York, and after I had um, uh, written a couple of other books, I, I, I decided to try to find a way to bring my interests together. I'd become extremely interested in um, narratives about the future of biotechnology, probably a byproduct of living in the Bay Area for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I had become very interested in the question of what meat is and the relationship between humans and non-human animals. And I was so interested in meat in part because it's a wonderful way of bringing up philosophical questions, of bringing people to a figurative table and getting them to think about uh, issues not only of ethics, but of what it means to be human that we don't often ask ourselves in most of our conversations about food. Mm -hmm. um, so just to, can you break down or give us an overview quickly of, about, you know, I said in the intro, it's a cultured meat is a, is a protein made by scientists growing animal cells into muscle fibers. A, what does that mean? And B, what is the difference between that and what we see on the market today in the form of, you know, impossible burgers and products from Beyond Meat? Thank you. So just to recap for the benefit of listeners who may be uh, fresh to the topic, cultured meat, also known as clean meat, also known as lab meat, also known as cultivated meat, does not exist as a consumer product today as of this conversation. Um, there are many academic laboratories and startup laboratories that are working to develop this as a consumer product, but we could not walk out to um, Safeway or Whole Foods and purchase it. Um, and the reason for that is that this is a, a very difficult technology to perfect. It's difficult to, to culture animal muscle cells in a laboratory and produce something that is biomimetic, that is to say that it copies in vivo animal meat perfectly, and it's also hard to do it in a way that, uh, they like to use this word as a verb, that scales up mm -hmm. um, uh, in the same way that they would need it to. If lab-grown meat is going to compete with conventional in vivo cheap meat, and the goal, the reason to care about doing this uh, for most of the people who work on it is the environment and animal welfare, um, two things that the industrial animal agriculture world is rather bad at. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, you asked about how it's different from, say, the Impossible Burger, the Beyond Meat Burger, the Morningstar Veggie Patty, all mm -hmm. the conventional 
of meat that we're familiar of, excuse me, of vegetarian meat surrogates with which we're familiar. Mm -hmm. And the answer is that those things are based on plant cells and they're based on what we might call the principle of sensory equivalency, the desire to mimic the experience of consuming meat, but not um, mimicking animal cells themselves. Um, whereas cultured meat wants to be biomimetic. It wants to, co it wants to, in fact, not just be sort of copying animal cells, but to be animal cells. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, the, the ideal is to have a product that is physically identical to its in vivo equivalent. So can you paint a picture of what this actually looks like? I'm having a hard time conceptualizing this. Is it, is it, does it, would it create, let's say like a chunk of meat, a meat loaf? Like what form does this wood <laughs> cultured meat look like? Well, at the moment, the, uh, things that scientists have created in their labs that I have had the privilege of going in and seeing as a researcher, we can get to those access issues later, uh, is like a meat slurry. <laughs> it's yeah. more like um, loose hamburger or sausage meat and less like, um, say, the kind of, of, of uh, aligned muscle fibers of a steak or pork chop. And, and that gets us to one of the, the problems. It's hard to grow complex forms of muscle tissue in a bioreactor mm -hmm. um, because that involves growing them in precisely anchored ways and having a bioreactor that can transmit nutrients to all of those cells, allowing them to thrive simultaneously and grow simultaneously in arrangement with one another, uh, combined with fat cells in their interstices, much as you might find in a uh, steak. That's uh, a little bit beyond the capacities that of, of any cultured meat lab that I know of mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. There are limits to my knowledge, and the reason there are limits to my knowledge, uh, basically what happened is that at the beginning of my research, much of the work that was being done was in academic laboratories. And um, by the time my research concluded, much of the work being done was in startups. Yeah. And they... And I'm, I'm sure you, you, uh, you're probably a, a step ahead of me here. They have um, a need to build, create, and protect intellectual property, which means they have understandable hesitations about letting a character such as myself <laughs> into their lab. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, um, I mean, but this, this process of kind of producing cultured meat has been around in some form for quite a while. So can you um, talk to us about the process for producing cultured meat and when this technology was originally developed and how it's evolved? Well, tissue culture has been around for quite a while. So tissue culture, and there's a the wonderful, wonderful book about its history called Culture and Life by the historian of science, Hannah Landecker, who teaches at UCLA. Really recommend it to anyone who's curious. It's mostly a medical technology. Mm -hmm. And it, we've only had people really trying to adapt it for food production for about 20 years, which is maybe a long time and a lifetime, but a, a short time uh, in terms of something as, as huge as the effort to change the foundations of human subsistence. 
And uh, I mean that in exactly as dramatic terms as I said it, um, to, to try to grow meat in labs and to try to create a way for us to get meat from uh, laboratories and then factories rather than from animals would be a, a real transformation of the way our species subsists on this planet. Um, so it, I don't think people have been really working on it for that long. At, at the moment, the scale at which people are producing small pieces of laboratory is uh, it's essentially artisanal from, mm-hmm. from a food standpoint. Um, so we don't have people producing lab-grown meat in anything like the kinds of factories that they would need to be producing it in to um, produce something whose cost is equivalent to the kind of cheap meat hamburgers that they ultimately want to challenge and displace. Right. Um, so the first, I mean, speaking of artisanal, uh, you write that the first, there was actually a burger that was produced right back in 2014, right? When you started writing this book and it, Oh yeah. 13 or 14. What, when did you start? Can you remind me? Yeah. So, so my research began around August, 2013, which was when Dr. Mark Post of Maastricht university is a cardiovascular medical researcher, uh, produced the first hamburger. Yes. And it had a price tag of $300,000. So that's pretty artisanal. I would say that fits within the artisanal category. <laughs> well, to be to be clear and to be fair to Mark, um, that over three hundred thousand dollars figure, it's about three hundred thirty thousand um, dollars, was not the price tag of a hamburger per se, but mm-hmm. the price tag of the uh, lab costs, including technicians, research time, etc., for months of work to produce two or three. Okay. Um, so uh, the the best comparison would probably be between Mark Post's 2013 cell grown ham, in vitro grown hamburger, mm-hmm. and early computers in the mid 20th century, which would fill the basement of a science building on a university campus and take a lot of power and cost a great deal of money to build, but that were gradually replaced by smaller and faster. Uh, 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 um, sort of descendants uh, right down to the smartphone that I'm using to uh, speak with you through. Okay. So why why beef? I mean, I've, I've read in the past um, that Just, you know, the, the startup Just is trying to do something similar with chicken. So I'm curious why you started um, to write about beef specifically. Yeah. So the reason why Mark Puss' team targeted beef is that cows are just about the most environmentally damaging animals that we raise for food. Mm -hmm. Their feed conversion ratio is famously abysmal, and um, we raise quite a few of them. A lot of the Amazonian rainforest that's being destroyed is being destroyed so that cows can eat things. And, of course, it would be more um, sort of direct and pragmatic for us to eat plants instead of to use cows to produce, to sort of to uh, turn plants into things that we like to eat more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, we, tend that would, to, we tend not to do that. Yeah, I was gonna, that would require uh, us to change and God forbid. Well, yeah. <laughs> and this is actually one of the, the cruxes of my book's argument, which is that um, cultured meat is a really interesting strategy for gratifying human appetites 
that we don't expect to change mm-hmm. or don't expect to be able to change. So Mark Post and many of the other scientists and entrepreneurs with whom I've spoken over the years, and I've been working on this from 2013 through late 2018, really believe that it would be better technically and for environmental sustainability's sake um, and for the defense of animals' sake for people to simply become vegetarians or vegans as if it were that simple. Mm -hmm. And one of the sort of meta stories about this technology is, well, why, why people think that's not going to happen and why so many people who spent decades of their lives as animal protection activists have uh, gotten on board with the idea that new technology and the market will transform what people eat faster than, say, the activism of an organization like PETA. Right. Well, PETA's a whole so, other story. I mean, we can... <laughs> We can talk about some of their methods uh, later, but and I, and I certainly want to get back to the question of environmental sustainability of um, you know the benefits to environmental sustainability of this kind of technology. But first, I think um, it would be helpful to talk a little bit about um, what you write about a lot in the book, which is the history of what meat means to people. Can you unpack some of these major themes um, for us, and then what it means to you? personally, and how perhaps it has changed throughout the course of writing this book. Oh, wow. Unpack is such a good metaphor for trying to think. So, one of the things that's wonderful about writing a book like this and researching it ethnographically is that you really don't know what you discover. And what I, one of the things that surprised me was uh, digging into the etymology of meat and of the usage of that word in English and then its counterpart words in other languages. Um, and learning that the content of that word changed a lot. So, um, meat at one point in uh, medieval period simply meant a piece of solid food as opposed to something liquid. And you can see traces of that in our language today. So nut meat, um, sort of sweet meats, the the meat as something solid. And um, we also used to eat uh, a far greater range of animals, a far greater range of animal species used to be meat. Whereas today, the word meat in English and for North American and Western European eaters usually summons only a few animal species to mind. And um, one of the intriguing things about lab-grown meat is that it's not an effort to uh, recreate, say, the meat of 15th century France. It's an effort to (laughs) mass-produce cell-cultured meat of the early 21st century. Mm. Um, And for the most part, the sort of... uh, Mo- the charismatic megafauna of the Western diet, the hamburger, the hot dog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So, uh, and so the, quest- the question I, w- I was sort of asking myself is, well, what are the options? <laughs> what are the things this could become? What are the stories that are hiding in this thing? And one of the stories, I think, is um, the, the, a history of the flexibility of the concept of meat itself and of all of the meanings that meat has held for different kinds of eaters. And one of the stories about the the modernization of meat is that as 
from the basically mid-19th century onwards, as Western eaters began to have access to more and more meat as meat approached the kind of cheap status that it has today in many places for many people. Um, meat also began to be more atomizing. Meat went from a roast collectively cut and divided communally to something that could be eaten on the go. Mm -hmm. So the handheld hamburger is sort of like the, it's kind of like the nightmare meat of modernity. <laughs> it's, it's the thing, and I, but by that I mean not just that, because I actually think it's quite delicious, but it can also be the thing that you eat on your way from your second job to your third job in your car. Yeah. It can be something that's too cheap, that's produced through the treatment of animals with sub-therapeutic doses of antibiotics, it can be something that uh, is the result of animals living in cathos that are potentially the breeding grounds for microbes that could cause some kind of pandemic. It, it, it's, it's bad in yeah. many respects. And it's also related to a kind of uh, set of economic pressures on human life that are themselves destructive. So, um, okay, by the way, it was... I had a hamburger last night. <laughs> They're delicious. They're, They're delicious. delicious. Well, and that's, I mean, and there, and then you go, that's the other kind of, I think, you know, side of the, of the coin. They are delicious, but it's like within a certain context uh, to me, they're delicious because I know where that meat came from and you know how it was produced and all of those things that try to, for me, kind of, you know, make me feel better about eating a hamburger. I would say, well, let's, can we talk about this for a second? Yeah, this of course. Is to the second part of your questions, you mm. asked me how meat has changed for me, how I feel about eating meat. And um, um, I think you're saying that there's something about uh, knowing that the animal whose meat you're eating had a relatively reasonable life that makes that hamburger more delicious. Is that right? Yeah, Absolutely. And, and it makes me feel better about my decision to, to eat meat as well. So I, I think I'm a big hypocrite. <laughs> I think so. And one of the things I try to stress in cultured meat is that, in, excuse me, in, in, in meat planet is that, <laughs> in meat planet is that I am someone who eats meat with a guilty conscience because not all of the meat that I eat uh, can sort of comes from the stereotypically bucolic, um, beautiful farm where animals are living the kinds of lives that they would ideally like to be living. Mm -hmm. um, I do not vet all of the meat that comes my way. I try not to eat a ton of meat. I'm actually not a huge meat lover, but I'm also an omnivore. I, I feel no particular personal impulse to become a vegetarian or a vegan. Mm -hmm. And... I eat tons of non-meat animal products. Um, so I approached the topic in part because I loved the idea of lab-grown meat. I thought that there was something so beautifully utopian about the idea of wanting to be a person who consumes animal flesh without being a person who kills animals. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it very much expressed... Uh, my own sort of, I think, ludicrous wish to have a world in which there's nothing but upsides, if you will. Yeah. Um, 
and 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 the utopianness of this is something that I try to sort of send up humorously in the book at the same time as I acknowledge my own guilty conscience. So I um I think just for for me one thing that I think the biggest thing for me eating meat is again I'm a total omnivore and I love beef specifically. However, I try to limit it, my consumption to like twice a month, let's say. And that is, so, I mean, my main driver is um, like environmental reasons. So I think we oh, all okay. have like, you know, our reasons. But um, so you said it kind of represents a sort of like a, a utopian approach or future. But to me, it feels very um, dystopian. And I, I think that it kind of raises the idea for me more broadly is just because we have this kind of technology does it mean we should use it? And this is not just for like the production of clean meat. I think this for me very much extends like beyond um, and kind of gets into the idea of like automation and where we, where are we headed um, as a, you know, as a people, but like, yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, I would be curious to know your thoughts on like, do you, do you really think this kind of technology is necessary? Like, is, are, are we fine with just the impossible burgers of the world? Well, we're not fine with anything. I mean, that's the, the, the bottom line is that there's nothing fine about contemporary civilization. What um, do you mean we by should that? Be dis- we should be discontent. Um, we have a fragile ecosystem that we're burning through. Mm-hmm. And we're burning through it, whether it's for beef cattle or for... Um, uh, industrially raised plants that we would turn into the equivalent number of plant burgers. Um, The impossible burger might be somewhat more gentle on the environment than its bovine-based competitors, equivalents. Um, But uh, I don't think that we know enough about the ultimate environmental cost of producing uh, meat surrogates. Mm-hmm. Um, that is plant-based meat surrogates, which was another one of my questions. Yeah, consequences. Yeah, and you know, there are sort of life cycle analyses put out by the companies, and um, that's good that they do that. I think that all of the companies, whether they're plant-based or animal cell-based, should be stressing transparency in whatever ways they, their venture capitalists will allow them to, <laughs> um, because uh, trust trust in relation to the public is something they badly need. But no, I don't think that, I don't think that we're, so to speak, okay, or that we um, can keep going in the way that we are. Um, one of the things that Meat Planet argues is that uh, what plagues our planet is growth. Mm-hmm. What plagues our planet is the number of us that it has on it and the number of us who uh, eat too much meat or too much of the wrong meat. Um, so in a sense, Meat Planet is, a, is, is a, an effort to get this, this new idea and use it as a lens uh, to ask what the problems underneath the solution really are. Um, and I'm skeptical. I'm, I'm very much um, in favor of cultured meat research. I'm a supporter of it, although not a sort of advocate in the public eye for it. Mm-hmm. But I am skeptical of the claim that a new sort of substrate of meat production could fix the problems for which I think widespread meat consumption serves as an index. Certainly. And those, so um, 
in that sense, the root problem is growth and the economic models to which growth is currently attached. Um, that is to say, growth-oriented capitalism. So what are some of the... You know what, we have to take a... Um a really quick commercial break, actually. But when we come back, I want to talk about um, what those some of those problems are behind the solutions um, of cultured meat. Um, so we'll get into that uh, in just one minute. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that 90% of Wisconsin's milk is made into cheese? And this is not just any milk. When Swiss, German, and Italian cheesemakers first settled into Wisconsin, they chose their new home because of the special terroir of the region. Its soil and water are nurtured by the goodness of glacial sediment, and those elements lend themselves to the very best milk. Today, Wisconsin produces 25% of all cheeses made in the U.S., and Wisconsin cheeses have won more awards than any other state or country in the world. How did they do it? Wisconsin cheesemakers combined their heritage and tradition with nonstop innovation. They were the first state to establish cheese grade standards and the first to require that every cheese plant be overseen by a licensed cheesemaker. Wisconsin is the only place outside of Europe where one can pursue an elite master cheesemaker certification. All of these impeccably high standards mean Wisconsin produces more than 48% of the nation's specialty cheese. Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe, Taste and imbibe to your heart's content, and bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Tickets available now at heritageradionetwork.org slash gala. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with Ben Aldez Orgaft about his new book, Meat Planet, Artificial Flesh and the Future of Food, published by California University Press. Okay, so... Before the break, I said that we were going to talk about what some of the problems are that you identified behind the solution. So can you tell us? <laughs> like, so Ben, of what are some of those yeah. problems? <laughs> so the effort to produce meat via tissue culture instead of via animals uh, seems to have behind it the idea that if we get rid of what's bad about meat, mm-hmm. we can continue to consume the same amount of it and also to presumably continue to have as many children as we do, have as much technology as we do, have as much of everything as we do. Um, It's an interesting kind of solution. Now, not everybody I interviewed for the project would say, yeah, Ben, that's exactly what we're trying to do. (laughs) In fact, I don't think that this is the way they would frame it at all. Uh, many of them, quite rightly, just think they're trying to solve the problem of uh, uh, brutality to non-human animals or the meat industry's terrible environmental footprint. Um, but uh, part of my take on the project is that it's an effort to treat uh, the problem of meat from the direction of production and supply rather than to ask questions about, uh, and I I said this earlier, 
what high degrees of meat consumption index as problems. Mm-hmm. And I think that what those problems include are too many people living what we think of as a kind of Western lifestyle that features a Western diet, which is high in uh, highly processed foods, in, in meats and refined sugar and flour and stuff like that, um, which tends to take a heavy toll on human health and um, tends to uh, be very resource intensive. And I don't think that we have any evidence that cultured meat wouldn't be in its own ways resource intensive, although it certainly couldn't be as resource intensive, I think, as uh, existing conventional meat is now. So um, you could say that the problems that are behind the solutions may be somewhat different from the ones that cultured meats architects are trying to fix. So my book asks people to uh, take a step back. You could imagine Meat Planet to be, I I sometimes describe the book as an anti-TED talk, (laughs) where you get 30 seconds into the TED talk and freeze frame as the speaker is pitching on behalf of their company's new product, and then ask what what is beneath their assumptions. And... uh, what are some of the other alternatives that they haven't explored? And Meat Planet suggests that there are political issues involved with meat and with the question of what it is to have enough meat, that um, the cultured meat approach, by its nature, can't take up. And uh, what I mean by that is that questions of sufficiency of food, meat and non-meat, questions of equity of distribution, uh, questions of how it's produced and whether or not we want to be the kind of society that has um, a thriving agricultural sector, Um, the question of what kinds of food we're going to want to have and what kind of sort of polyculture as opposed to monoculture of food we want to promote. Those are questions that... that inevitably get swept aside or aren't addressed, not out of any kind of malice, but simply because people focus on what they focus on. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, I mean, for me, that seems to be a theme no matter what we talk about. Me, even especially from like a policy perspective, there are so many unintended unintended consequences that I think arise with any sort of, any sort of intervention with, with the food system that I just feel like you know, people tend to be laser focused on one issue and one issue alone. And, um, there seems to be a lack of, and maybe, maybe it is thought through, but it's not certainly, I don't think discussed, right. When you talk about an intervention, that's something that I really liked about your book in particular to kind of push people to think a little bit more, think more broadly about. And I'm, I am myself, not a policy analyst or policy expert. Um, and there are many people who think through the issues in the meat system from the standpoint of policy, um, and I think that's important work. What my book does, though, is, uh, in a way, ask um, what conversations about uh, food are foreclosed by a focus on the problem of meat as a technical problem um, rather than as a social problem. So um, trying to figure out how to put this distinctly, um, 
we have uh, a lot of potential to come together to ask what kinds of lifestyles are sustainable mm-hmm. within a, uh, a city, within uh, a state, within a country, uh, and globally. And um, to assume that our problems uh, have only one or two dimensions and are reducible to a set of technical considerations inevitably uh, uh, occludes one or another part of the issue. And I think it also undercuts the political agency people have to come together and ask for the things that they think they need. Um, One of the things that made me anxious about cultured meat as I was doing my research was that it seemed to involve something quite top-down and technocratic, um, and in which uh, that was in keeping with a long tradition in the history of thinking about the future of food, in which a small group of elites will try to figure out how to feed the world or how to keep the world from overpopulating. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a tradition that I think that we should break from and break from in a self-consciously democratic fashion. I mean, is that possible, though? Because this, as you said earlier, this technology is so proprietary versus something like, you know, if you think about just kind of like the meat industry in general and and ranching, I mean, anyone ostensibly could raise cattle, right? But they certainly can't, you know, culture meat in a laboratory, create cultured meat. Well... Here, I think that we may be getting too deep into the thicket of hypotheticals, because this is a, this is a technology that does not, as a production technology, exist. Wait, did um, I just... Still, one second. Did I just, yeah. as a f- philosopher, I had a philosopher saying to me, I'm getting too much into hypotheticals. I think that's amazing, by the way. Oh, I have a tendency oh, to really yeah. go down the rabbit hole, Ben, but I think oh, I just no, no, proved the, that. The, hypotheti- <laughs> the hypothetical here is... The hypothetical here is that you're, you're, you're suggesting that here's technology that will inevitably stay in the hands of a few. Yeah. But, but I'm saying, well, okay, that, that might be true, but it doesn't exist yet. Right, right. I'm getting, <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself. Also yeah. a theme with and, me. <laughs> no, well, you know, it, 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 you're asking such good questions. It, it, it's, it's, the challenge, though, is um, I think remembering that the pace at which the technology moves is inevitably much slower than the media will make it seem. Okay. Because there's a kind of almost automatic collusion between the startups and media coverage about the startups, which is that the startups, for the sake of their funding, need to keep the idea of the viability of the technology in the air. Mm -hmm. And the media, for the sake of getting our clicks, um, needs to have the sort of the charismatic image of meat grown in a lab to put up on a website. Now, that's, that's not to say that there's anything that anybody's lying. It's simply to say that this is how the hype cycle happens. Mm-hmm. And it causes people like me to spend a lot of our time saying, wait, 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 it doesn't exist yet. Mm-hmm. Let it give it time. And I, I, I do that not as a skeptic or as an opponent, but rather because I think that um, it is a technology that takes a lot more work to get right than things for which the technical um, bar is much lower and easier to clear. That is to say, plant-based burgers. Right. 
Okay, so I know. So, oh, yeah. sorry, sorry, sorry to cut you off. No, not at all, not at all. You were just asking. You were asking a question about this ultimately, mm-hmm. and whether or not it's the kind of thing that um, publics really get to vote about. Mm-hmm. And I was going to, I was going to agree with you. I was going to say, well, that's not the way new technologies in our world really work in the right. first place. Um, and I was, I was simply going to sort of shrug and say, <laughs> ideally, we should be having conversations because we're entering a phase of, of general acknowledgement of climate crisis, uh, where we do, as, as a matter of political course, have public conversations about how we want to be able to live. Yeah. Okay. And it would be great if a technology like this could be used to convene those conversations. Um, we have, I know you've got a hard stop, so I, but I want to sneak in one more question. Um, Please do. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's about the future of food and, um, you know, the role of technology in improving our food system. How important do you think it is to be focused on technology specifically right now to correct for some of these, um, you know, major issues that we're facing? I think that the the thing to do is to be as smart a consumer of the idea of technological improvement as we can be. Let me try to unpack that. Mm-hmm. Um, we should not be waiting around for scientists and engineers to save the world. We should not be waiting around for food technologists to offer us new products, sort of nutraceutical type things that solve many problems for us at once. But we, we certainly should uh, acknowledge that we are stuck with an industrial food system, that we are stuck with a very massively scaled agricultural substrate. Ever since Fritz Haber and company created artificial uh, fertilizer, it was in 1908, I believe, mm-hmm. we, it's oddly timed with the advent of tissue culture, actually, yeah. although unrelated, hmm. unrelated. We have been heading for a world of bigness, um, and I don't think that it is responsible to say that we are going to feed many billions of people using neo-agrarian methods. So I agree with the food historian Rachel Loudon that there's something that we need to defend about uh, industrial agriculture, or as she would call it, sort of um, a, a modernist approach to agriculture and food technology. That's not to say that that's the world I love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just the world that I think we're, we're sort of doomed to inhabit. Um, I think, you know, in one of the, I did read an article um, or a, you know, in our, where an interview um, that you gave when you, where you talked about kind of when people think about the future of food or you, you said, you know, you go to a, f- the future of food conference and you're going to hear about um, plant-based meats and eating crickets in the future and, you know, other similar kind of interventions. But one thing that maybe people don't think enough about is the role of governments and what you can kind of do right now to, to fight the impacts of climate change. Can you talk a little bit about 
about that and like the promise of what we can kind of do or, you know, how we can kind of get better um, at solving some of these issues using the levers that currently exist right now? I think that this is all still very early. Um, We're still having conversations about how to educate people, as I'm sure you are. I mean, you're a professional at this, (laughs) about uh, the role of regulation and the role of um, government social programs in feeding people. Mm -hmm. Um, We do need to advocate for um, a kind of a safety net for people that accounts for the forms of malnutrition. And I think that that just want to sort of uh, give a shout to B. Wilson's new book, The Way We Eat Now, which is so good on the dynamics of contemporary malnutrition. I've had her on the show. Shameless plug for me. (laughs) Oh, good. No, B is wonderful. And and the, the... the, the dynamic in which you have sort of too many calories but the wrong ones right. in shorthand um, is one that governments really can do something about if they want to. And they can do that by providing access to healthier food. They can do that. I think beef is more optimistic than I am about the idea of teaching food to children mm-hmm. and the subjects in schools. Um, although in Japan it's done, I think, with good effect. Um, and I, I think that... Uh, people can also start to have more conversations about uh, how companies are regulated Mm -hmm. and they can ask companies for greater degrees of transparency. I think that this work is all, as I said earlier, in its earliest stages and we are starting to see evidence that climate change is running far faster than our ability to cut into some of the drivers of climate change. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, Agriculture is only one of those drivers. So, again, going going back to your earlier point, I think this is multi-causal and has to be worked at from multiple angles. And um, at the moment, you know, my role, of course, is not as an activist or advocate, but merely as a chronicler and analyst of an emerging technology. Um, so I find myself uh, sort of bewildered, honestly, by the variety of approaches that are out there. Um, And uh, uh, certainly, I make no great claims to have a solution to the crises that beset us. I think that that one of the things that I'm always finding myself advocating for is a certain kind of modesty about our capacities. And what I found so interesting about the climate of discussion around cultured meat was how profoundly immodest so much of it was. Um, yeah. And uh, it was how Promethean so much of it was. And mm-hmm. I, I've been making a sort of a, kind of an anti-pitch in my book for people to become more sophisticated consumers of the ideas about how, ideas about how the world changes and how we can change the world. All right. Um, well, I think we're going to have to leave it there. Unless, do we have a sneak preview of what you're, I know you literally just wrapped this project up. <laughs> you're in the process of, um, you know, celebrating uh, the conclusion of five uh, long years of, of this research and this wonderful product that came out of it. But any ideas of what you want to do in the future? Oh, um it's it's a, a a rock opera about uh, REM and food called uh, 
what is it called, Flan in the Place Where You Live? No, it's not. <laughs> it's nothing like that. I was it's like, not, that's a turn. <laughs> <laughs> it's nothing like that at all. The honest truth is I have no idea, and I'm delighted to not know. Um, and I think that uh, if they can afford to give themselves that luxury, I think every writer should not know what their next project will be at some point. So I'm, I'm happily unattached. I love that. Well, as soon as you... Um as soon as you become attached, uh, please keep me in mind because I would love to learn more about whatever the future holds for you. Thank you so much for this. This is, I've, I've learned a lot and uh, it's been a great conversation. Likewise. Thank you so much, Ben. All right. Um, Eating Matters is produced with the help from Julia Devon and Jessica Duncan. Our show engineer is Jeet Paul and music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast wherever they're found. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe and leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. I'm Jenna Liute and thank you for listening. Eating Matters is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.